It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. Have you ever wondered why the concept of God being a rock shows up so many times in the Old Testament? Well, in today's message, I'm going to be talking about this idea that God is the rock that is higher than I. And I think walking through this message is going to help you not only understand the idea of God being a rock in the Old Testament, but it's also going to help illuminate several passages of Jesus in the New Testament. Now, before we get to the session, I just wanted to freshly encourage you to consider joining us this fall for our upcoming five-week classic discipleship training program. It starts September 5th, and I'm really excited to have students back on this campus as we talk about the Word of God and how to live a victorious Christian life. How do you live amidst the culture that is getting ever more dark around us? In other words, how do you be light in the midst of darkness? If you've ever wanted practical training on how to live out the Christian life or how to study the Word of God or how do you live with victory, well, then I would encourage you to consider joining us for these five weeks starting September 5th. For more information about the program, as well as our other discipleship training programs, please visit ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Now, without further ado, let's get into this session as we talk about God being our rock. <clears throat> well, over the last uh, couple of weeks, and uh, we're, we're wrapping this up this week, so today and Thursday is the last of these, but uh, we've been walking through a mini-series on Jesus in the Old Testament and just seeing pictures of Jesus, these phenomenal, what we're calling Christophanies, uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, just to kind of set this tone, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to kind of layer a bunch of things together, and hopefully it'll make <laughs> sense by the end. <laughs> uh, I've been pondering Psalm 61 afresh, and uh, this, is, this is what Psalm 61 says. It says, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Isn't it interesting that the psalmist says, and we don't know, or sorry, it is the psalm of David. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Again, going to this idea of a rock. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, noticed this, but as you're reading through the Old Testament, over and over and over again, this idea of a rock shows up. Rocks just keep showing up all over the place. And it begs the question, Why? And I want to kind of talk about that a little bit. But before we do, I want to look at this idea of the carpenter. Uh, we know that when Jesus came, it says that he came and did carpentry work of sorts. Uh, here's a few verses. Matthew 13, 55. Uh, is, it was asked, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, uh, Joseph, Joseph, however you pronounce that, Simon and Judas? Uh, in Mark 6, 3, it says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, it's interesting that Jesus was called a carpenter, but I don't know what you think of when you hear a carpenter. I think, uh, like my dad does a lot of wood stuff, and so he goes out into the wood shop, and he, he's a carpenter. So he'll build cabinets, or he'll build birdhouses, or he'll fix things, and he does carpentry kind of work. That's not this idea. And it's interesting, when we think about Jesus being a carpenter, we're thinking, oh, you know, he probably built tables and chairs and, you know, dining room sets and all that fun stuff. That likely was not the case. In fact, the word that's used in, this, in the New Testament is tecton, which actually means a stonemason or an architect or a craftsman. Isn't that phenomenal? 
that Jesus, yes, he was a carpenter, and, and that is a legitimate translation of that word. But again, when we think carpenter, we think wood. But in Israel, when they use the word carpenter or this idea of tecton, it really was a stonemason or an architect. Do you know what Jesus was? He was a stonemason. Jesus was an architect, which is just a cool idea. <clears throat> so here's a few pictures. So for those listening via podcast, I apologize. Uh, but I figured we might as well have a keynote with pictures since we're talking about rocks. So uh, here's a picture in Galilee looking out to the sea. Uh, that's, that's the Sea of Galilee at the very top there. Uh, you can see the Golan Heights and the mountains in the very back. But it's interesting, all over Israel, if you visit Israel, it is rocky. I mean, every, I mean, there are rocks everywhere. In fact, I keep joking that you could pick up a rock and throw it and hit 10 rocks. I mean, there's, it's not like you have to go searching for rocks. And it's not like little tiny pebble rocks either. We're talking massive rocks all over the place. And they're, they're, just, they're just scattered abroad. In fact, if you're ever going to do farming in Israel, the biggest problem with farming is that you've got to remove all the rocks. And so you're constantly having to remove rocks. Even to this day, after hundreds of thousands of years of farming in Israel, they still, rocks just, for some, it's like they grow rocks. They, just, they keep coming out of the ground. And so you have to keep doing something with the rocks. So what they would do, uh, and by the way, trees are rather sparse in the Middle East. I mean, they have trees. Uh, in fact, they keep planting more and more trees because they need trees. But they don't have a ton of trees. And so what little trees you have, they're not going to cut them down and use them for building. We know that Solomon used trees for building the temple and in his palace and that kind of stuff. But they went all the way up north to Lebanon and went to the cedars of Lebanon and cut those trees down. Why? Because we're not going to cut our few trees that we have in Israel down. So when they would build houses and when they would build buildings, almost every building in the ancient days in Israel was built out of stone. So when Jesus is said that he was a tecton, Right? He's dealing with stone. Right? He was probably a house builder. And uh, again, Nazareth, where he grew up, <clears throat> scholars tell us that probably during the time of Jesus, Nazareth was probably only you know, two, three hundred people. And so likely Joseph and Jesus, as carpenters, as these stonemasons, were likely going into neighboring villages and helping them with building projects. Um, but then this is some old ruins uh, of, of some stone houses. And again, this is a... Uh, replica, if you will, of an old Jewish house. <clears throat> but again, everything's built out of stone. So ponder this idea. When you look at this concept of rocks in Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, right, rocks are symbolic of something. They're a symbol and a reminder of where you find your foundation, your strength, your immovability, your defense, your means of safety, your protection, and your refuge. Now, it's interesting as you go through the Old Testament that, of course, rocks are mentioned, but a lot of times rocks are associated with who God is. And nowhere in Scripture is a man called a rock. It is, it is a term only or utilized or uh, yeah, used for God alone. That God alone is called a rock. So no human is ever called a rock in the Old Testament. Only God. And let me just give you a few verses. I, I love these. Deuteronomy 32.4. He is a rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is a rock. And obviously not a literal rock, right? It's, it's symbolic. <laughs> Just like he has feathers, right? And we come under his feathers, the wings, which doesn't mean he's a chicken, right? Just for clarity's sake. Uh, 1 Samuel 2.2, there is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside you, and there is no rock like our God. 2 Samuel 22, 2-3, 
David said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength or my rock in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my fortress and my sanctuary, my savior. You save me from violence. Psalm 18:31. for who is God except the Lord or who is a rock beside our God? Uh, in, in Ephesians, <clears throat> I love this. It says that we are no longer uh, strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Get this, Jesus Christ himself being the chief rock. He's the cornerstone. Everything is put upon him. All the weight is upon Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that, again, and by the way, here's a whole bunch of verses if you want to study out the rock idea in the Old Testament. This idea of Jesus being a rock is, is just replete throughout Scripture. And sorry for those listening to the podcast. I, I dare not uh, read all those. So I'll put them in the show notes for this episode <laughs> if you, you want to study this out more. But this idea of rock shows up all over the place. And it's amazing to me that God, think about this, God sends Israel to this land, and as he sends them to the land, there's all these rocks. And it's like God is using what they are encountering every single day to say, let me tell you about my nature. You see that thing right there that you're having to deal with as you're, as you're farming? Yet that's what I am. That I'm immovable. I'm, I'm sturdy. I'm, I'm unshakable. I, hey, you can build upon this. That this. There's a foundation of this. If you take that whole, whole idea and you come into the New Testament, again, we understand that Jesus, who is God, is our rock. Right, that he is our horn of salvation, that he is our fortress, that he is our deliverer, that he is our strong tower, as the Psalms would say, that he is a rock. In fact, again, that Ephesians passage is that idea that he is the chief cornerstone, that he is the rock of all rocks. It's interesting then, as you come into uh, the New Testament, you get this scene where Jesus and the disciples go to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And let me just give you some quick background of this to set up this, uh, to set up this passage because it'll, it'll illuminate this thing in a, in a beautiful way. Uh, Caesarea Philippi stands in a lush area near the foot of Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon, or Mount Hermon, it sits at the very top of the, or the northern part of Israel. And the northern part of Israel is very lush. Uh, it's interesting that even though Israel is really, really tiny, it's like the size of, I forgot the, the, the measurement, but it's like Vermont. I mean, kind of a size. I mean, it's just tiny. And yet it has as many microclimates as California. Has like 15 microclimates. I mean, you have pure desert. You know, you have the seashore kind of stuff, and you have like this jungle, lush area up at the very top of the northern of Israel. And so, from Mount Hermon, the, the waters run down Mount Hermon. They they begin to fill up in these rivers, which become the Jordan River. But in this lush area sits this little city cal- called Caesarea Philippi. And at the death of King Herod, uh, in the, this is the New Testament time, uh, his son Philip the Tetrarch renamed the city after himself and Caesar Augustus, who originally gave control of the area to King Herod. So in order to honor Caesar, Philip said, hey, let's call this place Caesarea Philippi, which is kind of a fun idea if you're trying to impress the Caesar. Now, in the Old Testament times, the northeastern area of Israel became a center for, be- for, for Baal worship. Uh, if you remember your Old Testament stories, uh, when the kingdom split into the northern and southern kingdoms, the king says, hey, I don't want everyone to go down to Jerusalem to worship and, and leave the country because we split. So he built two places, one at Bethel and one in this place called Dan, which is right next door to this place of Caesarea Philippi. And he built the two golden calves and it became a place of basic, basically pagan worship. Uh, and, and so this area near Caesarea Philippi was associated with this idea of bell worship. 
Uh, eventually, the worship of the bells were replaced with worship of the Greek fertility gods, such as Pan. So here's a picture uh, of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and what you can see is right in the middle here, there's like this massive hole. Uh, and then, there, of course, there's these rivers that are coming out from there. It's a very lush, beautiful area. So what you're seeing, we're standing like in the middle of Caesarea Philippi. But during the ancient days, right where that hole is at, that's where one of the biggest temples in the northern area was located. And it was a temple dedicated to the fertility god Pan, uh, this Greek fertility god. And interestingly, that hole was called the Gates of Hades. So it was presumed that what would happen is uh, Pan, this fertility god, in of course Greek culture, myth, Right? He would live in this place of Hades, and every spring, of course, you know, it's springtime, you know, the birds and the bees are flying, and hey, we, wanna, we want good crops, we want our animals to reproduce, you know, we want good kids, and so, hey, we are going to sacrifice, and we're going to do these profane activities to call Pan out from Hades to be here in Caesarea Philippi and actually bless us with this blessing of fertility. So, again, this, this idea of gates of Hades— uh, the cave in the mountain was referred to as the Gates of Hades, the location where Pan and other fertility gods lived during the winter before they reemerged each spring. In order to entice the gods' return each spring, the people would often engage in prostitution, bestiality, and the like. And I'm not going to give details of what they would do, but it is, I mean, if you think Las Vegas is twisted, I mean, they have nothing on Caesarea Philippi. Everything was out in the open. Uh, the, uh, the god Pan was a goat, and so, of course, they had all these goats, and one of the ways that they would entice Pan is that they would commit bestiality with a whole bunch of goats, and they would parade certain things down the main street of Caesarea Philippi, and, and there's all this perversion that was out publicly in order to entice this god Pan to, to give blessing. So during the time of Jesus, then, Caesarea Philippi would be similar to a red-like district, a city of people knocking both, think about this, literally and symbolically on the gates of Hades. So here's this place that they actually called the Gates of Hades, and they were beckoning these gods, these, these fertility gods, to come out and bless them. And so there was all this perversion, which again, it's just full of darkness and, and, and twistedness. So they're, they're banging on the gates of hell to entice some sort of blessing, both symbolically and literally. Now imagine this. Oh, sorry, a couple more pictures. So uh, right over here on the left side where you have, see that temple, that's where that big hole is in, in the mountain. And then, of course, they had all these different things that we're not going to get into, but all these different buildings and temples and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, so that's what it would have looked like during the time of Jesus. So if you could imagine that, we're, we're down on the slope a little bit, looking upward, but that is all sitting up here at the base of this mountain, Okay. So with that as a context, listen to this passage in Matthew chapter uh, 16. It's really fascinating what Jesus does and says here at his place called Caesarea Philippi. It says that when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, now pause one second. You realize what a problem this already is? That if you were in this culture, in this day and age, and you're, you're hearing this passage about the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, going to a place called Caesarea Philippi, do you realize that already bespeaks of problems? Why would Jesus take his disciples, these good Jewish boys, why would he take them to the red light district? This is like going to the red light district of Amsterdam or walking certain streets in Las Vegas or 
it, it's that kind of a culture where all this stuff is out in the open. And my guess is, as good Jewish boys, right, most of the disciples probably have never been there, even though it's just north of where they lived, right? They had heard all the stories, but they're not going to go visit. Why? Because you're good Jewish kids. So could you imagine the corruption? Could you imagine just the intensity of this thing? And here is Jesus standing in the middle of this kind of a culture, and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And it's interesting that he's asking that question at this location. So ponder this. Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? This, who, who, sorry, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, some say that you are John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." I find it fascinating that Jesus gathers the disciples in the middle of all this paganism and all this darkness and all this twistedness, and he says, hey, who am I? And of course, Peter, being you know, the spokesperson, says, well, you are the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that Jesus gives Peter a, a blessing, a commendation? Peter, well done. <laughs> you know, this is one of those times where you open your mouth and you said something good. Now, he's about to say something really bad right after this. Right? Because Peter, uh, Jesus is going to say, hey, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter's going to say, no, you're not. And Jesus has to rebuke him. But at this moment, before we get into all that, Jesus says, hey, that was, that was a good answer. I am the Messiah. Now, it's interesting that it says that Jesus looked at Peter and says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, the, I don't want to step on a lot of toes here. But it's interesting that the Catholics took that passage and said, all right, well, obviously what Jesus is doing is giving Peter the authority to the church. And so the whole Pope line has been traced down through this passage with Peter. So Peter was the rock upon which the church is going to be built. And so the authority that Peter has is given down, and it's this line or the secession of popes. But that is not at all what Jesus is saying. In fact, there's this whole fun play on words that is happening in the passage that we in English tend to miss. But when you look at the passage, it's really interesting that what, what Jesus, is say, Jesus is saying is, He's talking to this guy named Simon, right? Son of Jonah. And he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you know what I'm going to call you? I'm going to call you Peter. And the word Peter means rock. Which is why, again, when he says, and on this rock I will build my church, we, we, want, we run crazy with that. And we say, oh, well then Peter's the big deal here. No, he's not. Because as I just even showed you, in the Old Testament, not, no single human was ever called a rock. There was only one who was the rock. And it was God himself. So ponder this. When, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, and Jesus says, yes, well done, Peter. I'm going to call you Peter. What he's actually saying, and I think this is hilarious, the word Peter in Greek actually means little tiny pebble. He's not saying you're a rock. He says you're a pebble. Hey, good job, Peter. I'm going to call you pebble. From now on, you're going to be known as pebble. Hey, good job. You're going to be a little tiny stone. But then he uses a different word, and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And what is he speaking of? He is speaking of himself. He's speaking of the fact that here is God who is the rock. 
who has come in the flesh, and I'm going to build the church on that rock. He's the chief cornerstone, folks. That, that the whole church, as Ephesians tells us, is built and established on Jesus Christ. Yes, it's built on the apostles and the prophets, but Jesus is the chief cornerstone. That the, that the whole weight of the building rests upon one person. His name is Jesus. So the church is not being built upon Peter. The church is being built upon Christ. That's really important. Uh, and again, it's interesting that it says that the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Now, again, uh, here's another picture for you. You can see how big this is, the little tiny people on the bottom there. <clears throat> so if you can imagine during the time of Jesus, he, he's looking at his disciples and he says, disciples, hey, who am I? And they says, you're the Messiah. And he goes, oh, you're right. You realize the whole backdrop for this whole thing is the gates of Hades. Of course, you know, we think of it, you know, more philosophically, I think, when we read scriptures. But in context, they're actually seeing the gates of Hades in that culture. And what Jesus is saying is, do you recognize that there is nothing here, nothing that is going on in this culture of Caesarea Philippi that will ever triumph or trump the, the, the reality of the rock? Now, I do find it actually hilarious that standing behind the gates of Hades is this massive cliff, right? It is one solid rock. And I actually think it's rather humorous, truth be told, that when you look at that little gate of Hades, even though it is massive, I mean, the, 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 the gaping hole is huge. And yet compared to the mountain that it sits in, it's tiny. And it's almost like there's this great visual picture that Jesus is trying to give his disciples, which is, look, it does not matter how perverse culture is. It does not matter how twisted Caesarea Philippi is. It does not matter how much pornography is being just trounced out in the streets of Caesarea Philippi. It does not matter how twisted things become. It doesn't matter how bad culture is. No matter how great the gates of Hades may be, it'll never triumph over the rock. See, there's no chance that that little tiny gates of Hades is ever going to take over that massive mountain, this rock. And it's like Jesus is using that symbolically to say, do you know who I am? I am the rock. That, hey, the, the essence of of the foundation and the refuge and the safety and the security is found in me. That there, you need to go no other place. And it does not matter how bad or how twisted culture gets because I am the rock. I don't know about you, but that is encouraging for today. Because things are getting worse. Things are getting darker. Things are getting more perverse. I mean, just, I mean, culture as a whole is just getting more twisted. And you could say, oh, no, it looks like we're losing. And Jesus says, hey, you can rest on the rock, because the gates of Hades cannot prevail against this thing. That no matter how much the darkness, no matter how much Satan tries to bring about a victory, he has no ability to win over Jesus. Jesus is the triumphant one. So ponder this. Jesus, who is the rock, meaning he's our foundation, our strength, our immovability, our defense, our means of safety, our protection, and our re refuge— was born as a lowly tecton, a stonemason or craftsman. And it is this craftsman or architect that is the architect of all of creation. For it was him who created the heavens and the earth. Do you know how cool it is to think that when God in Genesis 1 says, let there be light, and he begins to craft and create the world, that it's not like he's just randomly just coming up with, hey, I'm going to build a world. That at his heart, he is a rock. At his heart, he is a stonemason. And what does he do? He builds. He creates. 
And when Jesus comes in the flesh, what is he? He's a stonemason. He's a rock. And what does he do? He builds. He creates. That what you see in the Old Testament, he just, he's living out in the flesh. I love what Colossians 1.16 says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Why? He's a tecton. He is the creator of all things. He's the architect of all things. So here's a practical question. He is the rock. What are you built upon? In other words, if you go back to those passages in the Old Testament, let me just get and read you a couple of them. He is a rock. There is no rock like our God. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength, my rock in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my fortress and my sanctuary, my Savior. You save me from violence. Who is God except the Lord and who is a rock besides our God? You begin to get this tone of, he is the rock. But the real question is, are we built upon him? It's interesting, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quotes Matthew 7, 24-27, and he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it's interesting that Jesus is using the, the visual picture of the wadis where the rain would come and it would sweep anything in the wadis down, uh, down to the Dead Sea. But if you built your house upon the cleft, on, on the rock, the, that which is immovable, that there is this security and there's a safety and there is a peace. And Jesus is paralleling that too. Hey, if you hear these words of mine and you actually do them, it's not you just hear them and esteem them. It's not just, you, you know, you turn a blank ear and you just show up to church and, and just kind of go through the motions and you know when to stand up and sit down and you, you go through all that kind of stuff. That, that, that's building your house on sand. But isn't it interesting that if you, would, if you would hear and do the words of Jesus, it's like you're building your life upon a rock that is immovable. And when you look at culture today, it's, again, so interesting that what we as believers need to be built upon is not little tiny sand particles that shift and move around. We need to be built upon a rock who is none other than Jesus. And it's encouraging to me that if I am built upon Jesus, if he really is the cornerstone of my life, then it does not matter the winds and the waves that come. It does not matter what circumstances may bring. It does not matter even how perverse culture may get. It does not matter if persecution takes place. It does not matter how dark things become. Because my security and my refuge, my immovability, my fearlessness, my peace, my joy are in him. Not upon the things around me, but upon him. He is the rock. And in the midst of all of our culture and all the stuff that's going on today, where are you, where are you placed? Where, where are you standing? Where, where, where are you grounded? And can I encourage you, if it is on anything but Jesus Christ, may we throw that off and embrace the reality who is our rock. Love that idea. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, thank you that you are our rock. And as David said in Psalm 61, lead us to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me and a strong tower from my enemy. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would be our rock, that you would be our foundation, that you would be our cornerstone 
Lord, I ask that no matter how perverse and how dark and how, how depressing this culture gets, no matter if persecution increases, no, no matter what happens, Lord, I pray that we would realize that the gates of Hades back then as well as today still cannot prevail against you. That there's nothing that hell can produce, nothing that the powers of darkness can, can come up with that will ever trump you. That you are the triumphant one. You are the victor. And Lord, I pray that that would be reflected in each of our lives. That as Peter says, that we would always be ready to share with everybody the hope that lies within us, which is you. Which means that we must have a hope within us. And Lord, I'm convinced that the only way we're going to have hope demonstrated to this culture is when our life is built firmly upon a rock that is unshakable and immovable. Lord, thank you that we can be fearless. Thank you that we can live at peace. Thank you that we can have joy in every circumstance. Thank you that we do not have to worry and fret or fear because you are a rock and our lives are built upon you. Lord, I pray that that would only increase. And may your church, the bride, find firm footing once again. Lord, we love you. We just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.